Matthew chapter 5 again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Early on in church history, a question began to trouble theologians. It seemed that there were two ways that Christianity could be lived. And they gave those two ways the title of the contemplative life and the active life. The contemplative life would be the life of the theologian, always thinking about scripture and its significance and uh, how to formulate uh, a theology around it, uh, leaning heavily on the scriptures themselves, but also Greek philosophy or logic. Uh, So the theologian and the monk lived the contemplative life. And then there was the active life, and that was the missionary, the evangelist, the local church uh, leaders, the people who showed hospitality, and, and all the other ways that people provide service to the community. Almost every discussion about the contemplative life and the active life included the sisters Martha and Mary. Martha, the active one, Mary, the contemplative. St. Augustine wrestled with this challenge in the, the fourth century, and by the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas was still wrestling with it, two of the great minds of uh, Christian history. And some people still make a division between the two. And typically, it's people who do not know a whole lot, a whole lot about the contemplative life. The contemplative life is typically a very active life. Um, but there is the combining of work and prayer and prayer and work until you're praying through your work and working through your prayer. There is only one way, really, of being fully in God. And what we have here are, are two halves of a whole. St. Augustine said, two virtues are set before the human soul, the one active the other contemplative. The former shows the path, the latter shows the goal. Isaiah, well, God through the prophet Isaiah said, in returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. We return to rest, to renew our peace, to refresh our peace. We, we come here this morning and we're quiet. Okay, the annoying neighbor moved away with their annoying dog. Now we, have, now we have peace at last. Sometimes that's how we think of peace. It's the absence of noise. It's the absence of trouble. But in scripture, the word peace is a fullness, a, a, a rich fullness. The Hebrew shalom referred to all of the good things of life coming together, health, productivity, um, quality, uh, expertise, fun, uh, the enjoyment of love and family. 
Um, all of this makes for shalom, a very rich soul. Um, and so we come to this place of quiet, refresh ourselves in peace. As Isaiah said, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We, we sit in silence, open and receptive to God, refreshed in peace. And then when we move out into the world, we take that peace with us. We go into the world in peace and with peace. And then if we listen to the Spirit of God and we listen to our own bodies, as sometimes often the Spirit speaks through our bodies, we'll know when it's time to go back and get refreshed again. And then we'll know when it's time to go back out into the world again. But we we go into the world with peace and become peacemakers. And since that's exhausting and, and takes everything out of us, we've got to go back and fill the tank again. The first book that I ever wrote was on the Holy Spirit. It was hundreds of pages long and never got published, which I think is a good thing. Um, it's interesting. I did give uh, two copies away of people who requested it. Uh, one was uh, another minister, an, an older gentleman, and, and the other was my dad. The older gentleman plagiarized it, which I thought was rather interesting and very, very um, flattering to me because I really respected this guy. Um, but, but what I'm getting at is there, there was an editor of a publishing company, a brand new publishing company, who was interested in it and uh, wanted to talk about it. So I, I met them at their offices, uh, the owner of the company and the editor, and um, she went through it with me and pointed out all of the things that needed editing. You know, this was the first time I'd been through something like this, and uh, I had worked on this for years, and by then I had run out of steam for it, and I was on to something else. I was writing, writing my next great book that would never be published. And, um, and uh, she had all these ideas and I said, yeah, I'm not going to do all that work. Um, you're an editor. You know, if you want, you have at it. So it, there you have it. Um, but she did say something that turned out to be a defining moment in my life. She said, I see this as a bridge-building work. Now, I had not thought those specific words, but that was exactly what I was aiming for. I wanted to create a common ground for evangelical and charismatic Christians. I wanted evangelicals to not be afraid of charismatics and charismatics not feel like they had to convert evangelicals and get them all speaking in tongues. So um, it was very important for me to show how biblical this teaching of the Holy Spirit was and how you know, many theologians I could quote. Um, now, um, I, I was reminded, after she said that, I was thinking about it, bridge building, bridge building. And I remembered a time earlier, I was only like 18 years old, I think, and I had gone to this college briefing summer camp. It was mostly Presbyterians. 
And I was in this small group uh, that we'd meet once a day, and we'd, we'd kind of talk over what we had heard uh, from uh, these brilliant speakers. I remember Bob Craning was, was just a hero for me at the time. And, um, and so, you know, I ended up talking a lot. It, it, it's a gift. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and because they were Presbyterians, they didn't know the Bible that well. And so, <laughs> and so they kind of looked to me for answers to biblical questions. And on, on the third or fourth day, um, someone brought up the issue of speaking in tongues. Um, though he may have said glossolalia instead of speaking in tongues, but someone brought up the issue of speaking in tongues. And so they're batting it around, and I'm just quiet. I'm just listening to it. Um, and I hear all kinds of funny ideas about it. But, you know, hey, if you're a Presbyterian and you meet a Pentecostal, it can be terrifying. And, um, uh, and you wonder, are we really in the same religion? Um, so after a while, I finally spoke up, and I said, well, I speak in tongues. It was like a gasp, you know, like, <laughs> a collective intake of air. And, um, and I said, and for me, it's not really like this, and it's not really like that, and what I see in Scripture is this. And this one girl was like, sh- like, like nodding in her head, and, and uh, she made this statement. Um, she said, I would have never guessed that you spoke in tongues. And then she said, that's how it ought to be. And I think what she meant by that was, you shouldn't be pushing it on other people. You shouldn't be wearing it like uh, some sort of badge um, or accomplishment. That um, if it's yours and you value it, you should treasure it to yourself and between you and God. And let people make up their own mind about it, but have, a, you know, have the right ideas about it anyway. In other words, that too was a bridge-building moment for them because they met one of those people. And, uh, and up until that moment, they had accepted me as one of their people. And now I was both. So a bridge had been built. Maybe the next time they talked to someone who was charismatic, they had more openness towards the person and not just react to the label or, or to the weirdness. And, and I, I built this bridge without trying, without thinking about it. The development of bridge building into the core values of my ministry came gradually. You know, I'd like to say from then on, I was into building bridges. But that wasn't the, the, the immediate turn that I took. Um, But now I see that bridge building is really, really the heart of Jesus' work in the world. Now there's a serious obstacle to bridge building, and that is difficult people. You know, I'm I'm trying to, you know, reconcile, but, you know, there's this person and this person, and they just don't want to reconcile. I'm standing on the open ground between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, there's a sociological model 
that may give us some perspective. I think it's an old model, so if you know a better one, uh, more power to you. But this is mine, and it's old. And, uh, so I want you to uh, imagine a horizontal line, and it's intersected at the midpoint by a vertical line. So that, that vertical line represents the middle ground. On the extreme left, let me see, your left, um, there are the radicals. And on the extreme right, the traditionalist. But as we move in, we find that closer to center, on the left, we have progressives. And on the right, we have conservatives. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the people on the extreme edges. Um, because it's true of both the the traditionalists and the, la the uh, radicals. That the radicals and traditionalists tend to hold to their position for emotional reasons. And those closer to center, the conservatives and the progressives, tend to hold their position for rational reasons. Um, they think more about it. They study more. Um, the extremes refuse to listen to anything on the other side. In fact, the extremes refuse to listen to anyone except other extremists. Now, they might hear what someone else is saying, but they don't listen respectfully or seriously. They listen only to get fodder to load their rifles. What were those old rifles that the Hatfields and McCoys used? Like the muskets, oh yes, perfect. Um, those on the extremes will not acknowledge the merits of the opposing views. They'll just gloss right over them and go on to their typical rhetoric. And they will turn on their own for fraternizing. How dare you go to that seminar knowing this and this and this? This was the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus, wasn't it? You're fraternizing. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You're fraternizing with our sworn enemies. The moderates, however, will listen to the moderates of the other side. If it's rational, if it's factual, they will acknowledge that point. And they will either uh, take it and build on it, or they will argue any, any sort of defects that they see in it. And the moderates on both sides will listen to peacemakers. The person who says, let's come together. I think that this is a terrible time in history for our country to be so politically divided. And I, and I don't talk politics, and this, this isn't a political speech, it's just a heartbreak of my own, that there's no visible peacemaker standing in the middle, respected by both sides, who will say, let's come together. And I mean, right now I think it's beautiful that our current president can work with Democrats on a proposed budget that includes, you know, massive spending 
in lieu of the repairs that are going to have to be made in Florida. Uh, that, to me, is, is beautiful. But should it take this kind of devastation to accomplish something like that? Can't we find other reasons for coming to the middle and, and finding uh, compromises that work for everybody? Uh, to the extremists, no, it's not possible. But to the moderates, it is possible. Just give us that person who's sensitive to both sides, who listens to both sides, and takes into consideration the merits of both sides. Peacemakers are attacked from both the extremists. You know, um, no one wants to listen to them who's either in, in either extreme camp. And the extreme, extremists tend to be more vocal than the moderates. Um, so their criticisms and their accusations and their ridicule can be cruel. Um, I, I was going to remind you of Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians defends himself almost all the way through, feels like he has to defend himself to them, and how in that letter he talks about losing heart, but not losing heart because he keeps his focus on God and not just their criticisms of him, but that he finds it very difficult to do his work among them and even in other places because of these criticisms, because he feels undermined. He says, am I not an apostle? But I don't have to talk about Paul because I can talk to you about some of the criticisms that I've taken and how they have been so discouraging. And, and like a lot of other peacemakers, I've wanted to just give up. Why well, try to talk these people into making friends with these others? They'll never do it. They'll never open their heart. They're so closed off. There's a, there's a wall there, a prejudice there that I can't penetrate, and they get mad at me for trying. Why should I try to tell them to love Catholics and embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ? They just refuse to do it. One day last month, I was meditating on a passage in Ephesians, and I thought how nice it would be if all the Christians who pose as experts were exposed. You know, th that they were outed somehow. That, uh, that in the way that they go about defending the faith, they betray it. That their complete lack of love and, and their ability to be malicious and pernicious um, is contrary to Christ. Paul said, you have not so learned Christ. Um, some of them mask personality disorders behind piety. They're expert in deviousness and deficient in conscience and empathy. I don't even know how they can behave the way they do and call themselves Christians. It's, it's a contradiction. If you draw their attention, they will attack you publicly. Now, some of them will do it anonymously. They will shoot arrows from behind a rock. 
they'll ambush you know, from where you cannot reach them back. But others just don't mind being public at all. They're that loud mother in the grocery store. I don't care who's listening to me. <laughs> I'm still going to give you hell. You know, that, um, it's like, Mom, please, Mom, you're embarrassing us. They, they, they're not moved by that at all. I would like everyone, everyone, to see them for what they are. Not peacemakers, but troublemakers. Now, this is me being reactive because if I go to those blog sites or websites where my name happens to be mentioned with some dark undertone, I notice that I'm the third person to read that article in the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, so what am I worried about? Well, the other two people who read it left comments. Yeah, this guy's really out to lunch. You know, his dad must be really grieved over you know, what's become of him. Um, uh, you know, and I'd like to have thick skin. It's like, oh, no, consider the source or you know, something like that. And I'm thinking how I'd like for everyone to see them for what they are. But then the scripture I'd been med meditating on spoke to me, and the message was clear. Jesus Christ died to build bridges, not barriers. Peacemakers become targets of hateful people. And that's how it goes. And you're a peacemaker. So get a helmet. <laughs> Wear your pads. Another serious obstacle to peacemaking is the fact of barriers, that there are many barriers. A boundary line or wall is the most obvious marker of identity, and it's universal. Draw a line. It, it can be the imaginary line between California and Arizona. It can be the imaginary line between brother and sister in the back seat of the car. <laughs> Don't cross that line. Dad, she's on my side. Oh, um, this is mine. That's yours. Did you have the rule, I mean, if you had siblings, did you have the rule in your family that one person cuts the cake and the other one gets to choose which piece they want? We became experts in optical illusions. Well, I got the really big piece, ha ha. And you were thinking, yeah, you think. Um, this is how we distinguish us from them, our wall. This is us, that's them. Now, um, churches that publish their doctrinal statements do a wonderful service for their visitors. Because the visitor walks in, reads the doctrinal statement, and can immediately recognize whether they belong. I'm a them. I'm not an us here. I don't belong. This excludes me. I don't know if I believe all these things. They say that this is what their church is, is, their church is founded on. It's a barrier. It, it's, it's a wall. It says this is who we are, and 
this is our expectation of what being a Christian means. A missionary to India who became a missiologist, a professor, professor of sociology and missiology at Fuller Seminary, Donald McGavern, made a classic statement regarding evangelism. And he said that people are more, more likely to come to faith in Christ if they can do so without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. If it's their own people, they hear it in their own language and, and no class barrier. Um, I'm sorry, but your type is not welcome in our church. A young Chinese boy heard that. I, I, this may be legend, but it's what I was told. A young Chinese boy heard that when he tried to attend a church in China in the early 20th century. He was turned away and he hated Christians ever after. As an adult, he was Chairman Mao, who drove Christian missionaries out of China and began a general persecution of all Christian believers who were there. Um, so McGavern argues that what holds a lot of people back are not the basics. Many people come because they're attracted to the person of Jesus. They want to know more about him and what this is all about. It's not the basics, but it's the add-ons that they can't, they can't measure up to or they can't identify with or that becomes the wall, the barrier. And they say, well, not that. I, I want to be careful. You know, bridge building. Okay, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> have you ever watched Christian television and thought to yourself, if I had to be that, I would not be a Christian. Okay, there's some kind of barrier being thrown up there. Uh, that goes for Facebook, too. <laughs> and take heart, you don't have to be this to be a Christian. We're just like, you know, one rogue band. Um, a, a, guy, a guy came up to me one time. This is, this is when we had a church in Dana Point up on a hill. And he, he had a suit and tie on. We did early on, but we found out nobody else in the community wore suits and ties on Sunday mornings. And it was a way of saying, hi, I'm, I'm different. Um, <laughs> you know, so everyone's dressed kind of like we're, we're dressed today. And, he, he, and afterwards, he was really upset with me. He said, um, um, I noticed no one else is in a suit and tie. <laughs> did you? I said, yeah, ties. We call them visitor ribbons. And, um, <laughs> and, and he said, well, um, how come? I mean, shouldn't you show some respect for God when you go to church? And I heard, heard that a lot growing up. Every week when I complained about the button-down collars and the clip-on tie. Uh, and, and I said, no, I think that God looks at our hearts, and he's more concerned about that. We try to bring a right heart to God. Um, and, he, and I said, besides, if you look around our community, no one's wearing a suit and tie today except you. And he said, well, isn't that a compromise, the culture? And I said, well, yes, it is. Yes, that is a, a, a compromise. 
And some compromises are negotiable. Now, there are some things that are not negotiable. But there are the negotiables, and, and they're typically cultural. And this is a cultural issue that is negotiable. Why should we all be in suits and ties giving every visitor who steps in here the impression that they're not dressed right, that they're not right, that they should know better, um, when what's not negotiable is that we represent Jesus to them, that we greet them with open arms. So, um, uh, so this is, this is the, uh, at the heart of those add-ons I was talking about. Typically, the add-ons are tradition or culture or something else that just doesn't have the relevance to the heart of the issue that God is really concerned with. Robert Frost wrote a beautiful poem, I guess lots of beautiful poems, one called Mending Wall. And it's springtime, and he talks about how uh, in the springtime, he and his neighbor get together to repair the wall that divides their property from each other. And that the neighbor on his side of the wall, he on his side of the wall, and if the rocks have fallen from the wall onto his side, he picks them up. If the rocks have fallen on his own side, he picks them up and replaces them. And so they go along the wall together, noting the gaps and repairing them together. Um, he, they, they came to a place where no wall was needed. He said, uh, he's all pine cones, I'm all apples. And his pine cones are not going to cross over into my orchard to eat my apples. So why do we need a wall here? And, and so he, he asked them, why do we need a wall here? And he just responded, good fences make good neighbors. So th this is the proverb. And Robert Frost will go on to say, you know, this is what he learned from his dad. And to him, it's great wisdom. And so he sticks to it no matter what. But Robert Frost says, spring is the mischief in me. And I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But there are no cows here. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Before I built a wall, I'd like to know who I'm walling in or who I'm walling out. To make peace, some barriers have to come down. For he himself is our peace, said Paul to the Ephesians, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God. And he's talking specifically of the Jews and the Gentiles. Because at this time, um, in Jerusalem, the church is a great Jewish majority. But in the rest of the world, in the Roman Empire, the church is mostly Gentile, but also Jewish. And, and there's this natural 
division. In fact, there's this centuries-old hostility. And he says, but look, that wall between Jew and Gentile, that's come down. And he'll go further than that, much further than a lot of pastors today would like to go. And in Galatians, he says that God makes no distinction anymore between the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, the male and the female. That there, there are other barriers that have, have been brought down by Christ. And it's in, in the cross that he's brought the barriers down. The peacemaker had to die to accomplish this. Now, I was going to elaborate on all the arenas where we find barriers that need to come down in, in churches, in families, in neighborhoods, in the world at large. But instead, I'll just jump to our ultimate concern because we're getting pressed for time now. And our ultimate concern is when we're talking to another person who's, who's outside the faith, our question is, what keeps you from coming to faith in Jesus? What holds you back from God? And if their response is a barrier that can be brought down, then we can be peacemakers by saying, oh, but it doesn't have to be that way. If they say, well, I hate organized religion, we can say, oh, my religion's so disorganized. <laughs> You'd fit perfectly. If they say, um, they always ask for money, you can say, I don't even know what to do with the donation that I would like to give. Um, if they, I mean, if, if it's a barrier that can come down, then we bring the barrier down. This is the work of Christ. This is peacemaking, it's bridge building, it's barrier destroying. Peacemakers will do what they can to break down walls. Again, Paul says, all this is done by God who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. That's a good news Bible. The, the King James and the New American Standard uses the word reconcile. That God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. But I love, I've always loved the way the good news Bible says it. He changed us from enemies into his friends. That's what reconciliation is. We were enemies, now we're friends. And whatever wall was between us, it's come down. And what I realized is this is really a nice person after all, a good person, has positive qualities I never saw before when the wall was up and I couldn't see. The New American Standard Version says, and he, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, when I hear that Kim Jong-un has achieved a missile that can reach mainland United States of America with a nuclear warhead, what bomb immediately explodes in my heart? 
that makes me say something like, we should strike first. We should wipe that nation off the face of the earth. We should agitate Russia and China so bad that this person cannot find support anywhere in the world anymore. We should be aggressive in our approach to them, to this. And if I can turn from peace to war that quickly, what hope do I have of being a peacemaker? I'm not looking at how can we make peace. Now, there are people in South Korea, and a good number of people also in that area of the world, in Japan, in Mongolia, in China, uh, even some in North Korea. I, I have been to Korea once in my life. It was a couple of years ago for a symposium on the uni reunification of North and South Korea. And there are people who still have family in North Korea, as far as they know. And there is this movement toward reunification. These people are trying to get it going. Of course, you know, they realize it's not going to happen politically. But now the U.S., and there are lots of people in the U.S. lobbying for this. And the U.S. has just this last week responded to this movement and said, that's not going to work now. But have we, have we given it every possibility? And I don't know what, even what that means. I have no idea. There are experts on these things. But if there's a peacemaker in me, that peacemaker is saying, there's got to be some other way. Do we really want to start pushing those buttons? Will anyone have peace if we do? Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He says that we are to make peace. Make peace anywhere that you can. Make peace in the hearts of a grief-stricken family. They need peace. That, doesn't, that may not mean bringing down any walls. It may mean just bringing comfort and hope and compassion. Bring peace to the heart of a friend who's agitated about something. Talk them down calmly, lovingly. Bring peace among co-workers as best you can. Paul says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Peacemakers pursue things that make for peace. We make peace. That just sounds so funny. It sounds almost like peace is substantial, but it is. And that's how we want it to take over our lives in a substantial way so that we are living yeah, we order our lives accordingly. Jesus said, make peace, then go worship. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. First make peace, then 
worship. Your heart will be freer. It will be more open. For they shall be called the sons of God. The peace that we need has to be independent of our circumstances. And if it's found in Jesus, it is independent. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. How does the world give? Well, the world gives superficially. The world gives if you'll do what I say, we'll have peace. Um, The world gives and then it takes away again. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You'll be called the sons of God. And I intentionally stick with sons because it could, we could translate this, you'll be called the children of God. But the son had special rights in the ancient world, both Hebrew and Rome, Roman cultures. And if you ever saw the movie Ben-Hur with uh, uh, Charlton Heston, thank you. Um, we did, when, when we were kids, not long after it came out, we had to get in a train go all the way to L.A. so no one in the church would see us. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> if you'll remember, Ben-Hur saved this prefect's life and was adopted by him and instantly had all the rights of his... He was now a free Roman citizen. Though he was Jewish, he was now a free Roman citizen and wealthy. He was also an heir. So the, 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 what we receive as sons... Uh, and, and in this sense, we all have this particular right. Um, is what is what Jesus has. Um, the word "son of" the Hebrew language had very few words and very few adjectives, and sometimes they had to to make words do double duty or triple duty, or they'd squish words together and they get a different a different meaning. And and so they they wouldn't say this was a um, pure-hearted person. This was a son of purity. So we have the sons of Belial. Belial, like worthless. So these are the worthless people. Uh, the sons of Belial. Jesus called James and John sons of thunder. <laughs> Whatever he meant by that, I don't even want to guess. Um, but <clears throat> a person's identity was found in relation to another person or to a place Goliath of Gath, or to uh, a, a, a trait, uh, Jabin, or Jabez, whose name meant pain, uh, and so on. So what's interesting to me is Jesus does not say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of peace. They shall be called sons of peace. That's what I would expect. Now, to be called, again, is to be given an identity. It's to be named. And, and to name a person is to give that person an identity. So they shall be named sons of God. And instead of attaching us to peace, he attaches us to God, who is our peace. And Jesus Christ shares with us his sonship, his unique favor with God. He shares with us.
with all of its privileges and inheritance and all of its chores and responsibilities. That's why you're a change agent and you don't have a choice. Because as a son of God, as a child of God, you are with Jesus in all that he inherits and in all that he's responsible for. Jesus, the peacemaker. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's the ultimate peacemaking between a person and God. Be reconciled to God. So maybe we can do this. Every morning, ask, God, let me be a peacemaker today. And then be ready for the opportunities that come. Ask, in my little circle, where does peace need to enter? What barrier needs to come down? And as Paul said, as far as it depends on you, pursue peace with all people. Every day ask, please God, make me a peacemaker today and watch as the opportunities come. And they will. Would you please stand? May the Lord our God make us instruments of his peace. Where there is hate, may we sow love. And may he grant that we seek not so much to be consoled as to console. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.